there's a big wage gap between traditional firms who are hiring in-house at the margin and the workers who are employed by contractors who are paid the lowest wages in the economies. Hi, I'm Clémentine Vanifonter. I'm an assistant professor of economics at the University of Toronto, and this is Inequality Talks. Adrien Bilal is currently a postdoctoral fellow at the Harvard University Department of Economics, where he will start working as an assistant professor in the summer of 2022. His main research interests are in macroeconomics, labor economics, and spatial economics. We took the time to discuss his most recent research paper with Hugo Lullier on the impact of outsourcing on inequality. Hi, Adrien. Welcome. Thank you very much for being here. Well, thanks so much for inviting me. It's great to be here. I'm excited to talk about your work on outsourcing. So we know that in many developed economies, outsourcing, so the idea that you would rely on an outside supplier instead of internal source to produce something, has been increasingly prevalent. And in your own work, you propose a theoretical model and an empirical exercise to try to look at the impact of this evolution and the impact of outsourcing on inequality specifically. What are the main economic puzzles associated to the prevalence of outsourcing today? So there are several aspects to it. So the first kind of big question is that we're seeing more and more of these firms are relying on contract labor instead of hiring workers in-house to perform tasks that they used to hire workers in-house for. So think about, for instance, a security guard company that is hired by Apple in California to guard its campus in the Bay Area instead of Apple hiring a bunch of security guards. And there's been a big increase in the prevalence of that type of domestic outsourcing in the economy. Together with it, we also know that there is a large outsourcing wage penalty, that the workers who are working for these contractors are paid less than when they were working in-house for Apple. So think about the security guards again. And so that's you know the first puzzle, if you like, that there's this big wage difference between the wages that are paid to the same workers, essentially, when they're working in-house versus when they're working for those security guard companies. So that's the first puzzle. And then going you know, one step further, it's even puzzling that this transaction is happening in the first place. You would expect you know, that to some extent, the firms would be somewhat indifferent between you know, hiring the contracting company or hiring the worker in-house you know, if the wages were somewhat similar. Now, of course, the wages are not similar. And so that's going to be the basis for our theoretical model and our explanation of why we're seeing outsourcing. Once we understand that, what's the impact of outsourcing on both inequality and growth? So I wanted to ask you first to present what you think are the key ingredients of your model and why they are useful to better understand the consequences of outsourcing. So the first key ingredient and the kind of building block that we need in this environment is one that allows us to think about the same worker earning different wages at different employers. In the data, we know that that's a fact of life. You know, some workers are lucky, work at high-paying firms, and the same worker can then become unlucky and work at the firm that's paying lower wages. And that's particularly salient in the context of outsourcing, where we see that some firms, the contractors, are paying really low wages relative to the economy's average. And so the first building block that we bring in to generate that in our theory is simply the presence of very standard labor market friction. So it takes time for workers to search for new jobs. They can't reallocate you know, very fast between firms Firms, on the other hand, also take time to find workers. As a result, that creates these sort of bilateral monopoly situations in which there are rents to be shared 
because the firm understands that if the worker quits, it's going to lose some of the potential output. Uh, same thing for the worker on the other side. And so that allows to generate wage dispersion between the different firms. So that's the first key element. And there are some technical contributions there to make this class of model, if you like, consistent with the other basic ingredients we need to think about outsourcing. So that's the first block, which you know is standard in many ways and with some little bells and whistles. Now, the second block is, of course, to introduce these contracting firms in the environment. So that's kind of the key place where we're going to need a new specific assumptions and structure to understand the impact of outsourcing on inequality. And so these contracting companies that we then introduce in the environment, instead of producing a consumption good like these other firms that I was just talking about, they're going to do something quite different. They're going to hire workers in the same labor markets as the traditional firms, if you like. But instead of producing a consumption good, like, you know, producing an iPhone, for instance, to keep with the Apple example, they're going to take their workers, combine them, if you like, together, and they're going to rent the labor services of these workers to Apple in California. So this is our security guard company. Now, the key observation at this point is that for there to be outsourcing in equilibrium, so the reason why we're seeing outsourcing is that the price that this service costs to the traditional firm has to be lower than the wage this traditional firm would otherwise pay to its workers. So remember, now we're having this wage dispersion. So you know, some firms are paying really high wages because they want to be big and they want to attract many workers, so they're paying high wages. The price of outsourcing has to fall somewhere below the highest wages in the economy. Otherwise, we wouldn't see any outsourcing. And then to the extent that it does, that implies that the, you know, this firm that was paying the really high wages, think about Apple, was paying its security guards high wages because it needs a lot of security guards, is then going to find it profitable to say, no, no, I'm not going to hire in-house anymore. I'm going to switch to outsourcing. And then the final implication is that because the price of outsourcing is lower than the highest wage, it means that the contractors themselves have to be paying even lower wages to their workers to be profitable. And so you get this whole chain, if you will, that comes with outsourcing that the in-house workers who were previously working for Apple were earning these really high wages just because Apple needed to get a lot of those security guards. Now it has the option to outsource. It's paying a lower price. And then the contractors are themselves profitable because they end up paying even lower wages to their workers. And so that's how we rationalize the fact that there's a big wage gap between traditional firms who are hiring in-house at the margin and the workers who are employed by contractors who are paid the lowest wages in the economy. And so that's simply the equilibrium response of the price of outsourcing to the demand for these services. La minute technique. So in this podcast, researchers take about one minute to try to explain one technical aspect of their research. And you mentioned in your paper that you try to provide micro foundations of outsourcing. So that basically means you're trying to explicitly model outsourcing. I wanted to ask you what role does it play in your model, if you could walk us through this. Yeah, so an important part of the theory is that outsourcing is not completely costless. And in our environment, when firms use contract labor, workers turn out to be not quite as efficient as you know, when they're in-house employees. And we think about that you know, relative efficiency gap as reflecting monitoring and communication frictions. So if the contract worker receives conflicting directives from the legal employer and the firm at which it's actually working in practice, they may not really know what to do. And so that's going to re result in some efficiency loss. And so formally speaking, we model this cost in our environment in several ways. The first way is in line with the trade literature, and we call that cost an iceberg a trade cost. So 
the amount of efficiency units that are sold by the contractor are melt, if you like, relative to the number of units of labor it hires because of these communication frictions. So that's one interpretation, which is very simple and basic. And we think of that iceberg cost that encapsulating these monitoring frictions. And then we also introduce capital in the model and show that this iceberg cost formulation is actually isomorphic, exactly identical to the price of the capital that the contractors need to set up operations uh, moving around. So once you are closing the model, it provides a couple of nice predictions. Could you give us a sense of what are the most important predictions? We have three key predictions that come out of this model and that we then test in the data. So the first prediction is a cross-sectional one that we should expect to see you know, more productive and bigger firms outsource more, rely relatively more on outsourcing. Why is that the case? It's because through this lens of these wage inequality that arises in our model and the presence of labor market frictions, it so turns out that it's always these more productive and bigger firms that are paying the higher wages in the economy uh, simply because they want to attract more workers. And so how do you do that? You pay higher wages. But to the extent that these firms are the high wage firms, they're the ones who have the highest incentives to outsource to save on these high labor costs. And so that's the first prediction. Highly productive big firms outsource relatively more. Our second implication is uh, what we call the productivity effect. The productivity effect is simply saying that once you outsource as a firm, you free yourself from the hiring constraints that come with the presence of labor market frictions. Now you don't need to interview your workers all the time and spend time and resources on that. You can just go to the contracting firm and get the workers from there. In practice, what does that mean? It means that you scale up. You're moving from an upward sloping labor cost curve to a flat one. So you scale up and your output goes up. So that's our second implication. The third implication is, of course, this wage gap that we should observe between the traditional firms and the contracting firms that we already knew from the literature, and that was precisely the empirical regularity that we set out to explain. So when you move to the empirical part, you have to come up with an empirical definition of outsourcing, or more specifically, an outsourcing event. Could you tell us how you do that, and what are the data sources you have to use? We're building on previous work there with some changes. So our measure of outsourcing in the data comes from a large-scale firm-level survey in France, where they ask firms to detail their intermediate purchases quite finely. And in one of these lines, they have to report how much they're spending on external workers. What are external workers? They're workers who are not employees of the firm, but they're still under the legal authority of the firm. So we're going to interpret those expenses as spending on outsourced workers. And so that's the quite unique feature of our data set because previous work did not have this type of firm level expenditure measures. We're going to use that data in part to test our theory. And then as you were mentioning, for the last piece of our test to test the, the wage effect of outsourcing, we're going to have to define outsourcing events so that we can track workers who are losing their jobs, presumably because of one of those outsourcing events and then transitioning to a contractor. And so there we build heavily on previous work where we define an outsourcing event as a change in the employment structure of the firm we see the employment share of certain service occupations, and for instance, cafeteria workers, cleaning services, or security guards go down. At the same time, we impose that we need to see an increase in these outsourcing expenditures. So that's the new part that we can do with our data. So we can restrict a little bit the definition of an outsourcing event relative to previous work. And then the final condition that we impose is that we see a large cluster of workers moving from the origin firm to a new firm. And so that gives us more confidence that we're actually capturing an outsourcing event where these workers are simply being outsourced to a contractor.
So your main results point to a trade-off or a race between the impact on productivity and on inequality. Could you tell us more about that? So that's the main tension that we have in our environment, precisely because we're working with the joint model of both the behavior of firms and the behavior of workers when it comes to outsourcing. So the gains from outsourcing, from the perspective of the entire economy, come from this productivity effect, our second implication, that you know, when firms outsource, they scale up more efficiently. In the aggregate, that reallocates you know, workers and labor from low productivity firms to these high productivity firms who are growing disproportionately because they're outsourcing. And so that's good for aggregate output. And indeed, we find that output goes up by about 3% when we simulate the effect of outsourcing in the 1996 to 2007 decade on the French economy. And this increase in output is split somewhat half-half between this reallocation effect that I was just talking about, that you're kind of reallocating labor towards the best firms in the economy. But at the same time, outsourcing is also like an improvement in the aggregate search efficiency of the economy, because when more contractors enter the economy, that expands the amount of resources available for hiring in the aggregate, and so more workers enter employment. And so from the pure unemployment versus employment perspective, outsourcing is in fact good for workers because that allows them to find jobs more easily. And that's also very consistent with anecdotal evidence that you know, many workers now, if they need to find a job rapidly, they'll go to one of these temp agencies or contractors for a little while before transitioning to a more stable job. Now, that's the upside of outsourcing. Now, there's a big downside also that comes with it, and that's this tension between aggregate productivity, if you like, and inequality. The downside is that the low-skilled workers who are exposed to outsourcing in these catering services, security services, you know, lose quite a bit because of outsourcing. They lose along three different margins. Each has a particular interpretation. So the first margin along which they lose is the direct partial equilibrium, if you like, impact of outsourcing. It's simply the fact that when firms outsource, you know, more workers end up working for the contractors. Now, we know contractors are paying lower wages. And so on average, that results in losses for the average low-skilled worker. Now, the wage gap is pretty big. It's 10% uh, when you transition from the average firm to the contractor. Now, of course, not all workers make that transition. In that decade, we see that the amount of workers who are working for contractors goes from 5 to 10% approximately. So you're going to you know, multiply that by the average wage loss, and so you get at the number that on average workers lose about 1% to 2% in wages because of that relocation. That's the first effect, but there are two additional important effects that arise because of outsourcing. The second effect is a general equilibrium effect, and it comes from the fact that even firms who keep their workers in-house are going to respond to the rise in outsourcing. Why is that the case? Well, now they're not competing for workers with the best firms in the economy because those guys are outsourcing, uh, but they can get all those workers for low wages from the contractors who have now increased their employment share. And so as a result, these medium productivity firms, if you like, so the mom and pop restaurant, don't see any changes in their demand, but facing weaker labor market competition. And so they also lower their wages, even though they're not directly outsourcing. And so that actually adds another 1% to 2% in terms of the earnings losses that the average low-skilled worker experiences. The third component of the impact of outsourcing on low-skilled workers is this effect whereby outsourcing brings in more workers into employment. And so that's actually a positive effect. You know, the employment rate of low-skilled workers increases. They have an easier time finding jobs. And so that contributes to positive 3% to earnings on average. Now you put all of that together and you'll see that low-skilled workers though on average lose by about 1% of earnings and welfare according to our calculations. What's nice about your work is that you also try to simulate what would happen if we were in a different policy environment. And typically you take the example of a change in minimum wage. 
what is it that you do exactly and what are the impact in terms of inequality? The minimum wage is the natural policy uh, tool, if you like, to counter the redistributional effects of outsourcing. Why? Because you can maintain the level of wages at any desired level. So that's good for workers. Of course, the trade-off is that if you increase the minimum wage too much, you may push up the cost of labor so much for firms that they're going to cut back on hiring. And so what we do once we have our structure set up is to simulate the effect of an increase in the minimum wage that happens at the same time as we see this rise in outsourcing. And so we experiment with different policy scenarios. But to give you a quick summary, what we find is that we can reverse engineer, if you like, what would be the appropriate increase in the minimum wage that would leave workers indifferent. So making sure that they're as well off in 2007 relative to 1996. And we found that it implies a relatively moderate increase in the minimum wage, about 3%. And so with this 3% increase in the minimum wage, you sustain the level of worker earnings, and you also still maintain about 80% of the baseline output gains. So you're not distorting the economy a lot with this small increase in the minimum wage. You're making sure that workers are as well off and you still get a lot of the productivity gains. You can even further with the minimum wage, say a 9% increase. In that case, you even stabilize the labor share in France over that decade, which is typically depressed because of outsourcing. In that case, you're making workers even better off because you're you know, making sure that they're getting much higher wages. But then you're starting to kick in into the decreasing returns part and output gains are two thirds of their baseline. And that already tells you that if you go too far with the minimum wage, the output is going to respond negatively. But overall, we think of you know, those experiments in our environment as providing a menu of options, depending on the type of preferences decision makers may have over you know, inequality versus aggregate output. And following up on that, I wanted to ask you about your views on the general policy implications of this exercise and how does the increasing prevalence of outsourcing should affect how we think about other types of policies? One that we initially thought about, it was uh, unemployment insurance. So perhaps, you know, unemployment insurance may have similar effects to the minimum wage or different potentially. And so it's kind of interesting to think about if you were not willing to increase the minimum wage, but you're willing to increase unemployment insurance, would that be helpful in mitigating the adverse impact of outsourcing on workers who are particularly exposed to it? The direct effect of unemployment insurance is not going to do anything to help workers simply because We've seen that with outsourcing, workers are employed even more frequently than uh, without. And so they're not going to be benefiting from this increase in the generosity of unemployment insurance. However, again, in general equilibrium, if you increase the generosity of unemployment insurance, that's going to also push up the overall level of wages. The you know, workers are going to be willing to accept jobs only that are pay paying more if they can uh, stay at home and get the unemployment benefits. And so that means that you know, in terms of the response of wages in equilibrium to raise in unemployment insurance, that's going to look very similar to an increase in the minimum wage. And so you can achieve kind of similar redistribution with unemployment insurance and the minimum wage. Now, I think the minimum wage is a much more direct policy tool to achieve that particular goal because it doesn't rely on these other channels that may or may not be put in practice like the reservation wage channel I was just mentioning. And the other advantage of the minimum wage is that it doesn't have any direct fiscal costs. It's you're just telling the firms to increase wages, whereas unemployment insurance would require some extra taxation somewhere else in the economy to fund the increase in unemployment insurance generosity, and that extra taxation may or may not be distortionary. Okay, so before we wrap up, I wanted to ask if you had any recommendation for our listeners. In the last couple of years, there's one movie that I think really struck me as a, a both exceptional and a speaking very directly to 
know, inequality in, in many ways. You know, I would recommend watching Les Miserables. So there are many movies called Les Miserables. There's also a very famous book, of course. So I'm thinking about the 2019 movie by Laj Lai. And that won the jury prize at the 2019 Cannes Festival. And I'm going to start by saying that for those who haven't seen the movie, the movie has very little direct connection to Victor Hugo's novel, except that it's set in the same city of Montfermeil, but just 200 years later. And so it's a fabulous movie about you know, social and racial tensions in the you know, low-income Montfermeil suburb close to Paris. The movie centers on police violence and the buildup of tensions between a group of teenagers and a police squadron. You know, I think... The best way to summarize this movie is perhaps the quote by Dr. King that returning violence for violence multiplies violence, adding deeper darkness to a night already devoid of stars. So that's, I think, a perfect summary of the movie. And now connecting back to the research, why do I recommend this movie is that throughout this movie, you see really upsetting accuracy, you know, how the dramatic income and racial inequality that is pervasive in, in the French banlieues you know, can lead to very dire economic outcomes and therefore violence. So it's very difficult to find and in particular to keep a job when you live in municipalities like Montfermeil in the French banlieues. At the same time, formal education and labor market prospects are dire, which can lead to some of the events that unfold uh, in the movie. In many ways, that movie reminded me, for those who have seen this other one, reminded me of that other movie by Spike Lee, Do the Right Thing. It has a very similar theme to it. Of course, the Spike Lee movie is set in Brooklyn in the 80s. And just to conclude, you know, the reason I'm bringing up The Miserable is also because it connects to another aspect of my research where I study spatial disparities and local unemployment rates in France and in the U.S. So that also connects to the type of labor market inequality that we've been talking about in this podcast. Thank you so much, Adrien, for sharing this with us and for taking the time to talk about your research. Thank you, Clementine. This was Inequality Talks, a podcast recorded by Clementine Vanifanter in Toronto. I want to thank Clémentine Benoit for editing this episode. Music is by The Count. Thanks for listening and stay tuned for the next episode.